Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that loves to eat. The rich. <laughs> and cheese fries. <laughs> Today we have Laura, Helen, and Lindsay. Yes. I just wanted to start with like acknowledging that there's a lot of fucked up shit happening in the world. This week has been really harrowing. So this is a PSA reminder to take care of yourself. That means sleeping in and not looking at the news. Hanging out with cats or dogs or your other favorite furry friends. Just Curling up with a book, making sure you're feeling good. Making things with your own two hands or playing in dirt and being out in the sunshine or moving your body or cooking and eating a really good meal. Do it. Do it. it. Yeah. Don't feel like, I feel like a lot of times on the left, we end up having like a guilt complex if we're not totally plugged in all the time and just remember to give yourself permission to unplug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That being said, (laughs) today's episode is about food justice. So this is the other side of food issues in the United States and elsewhere. So we're building off of the food sovereignty issue that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and we're adding in other issues that people face throughout this country related to food. As always, I think it's helpful for us to define what we're talking about when we talk about random issues. So when we talk about food justice... Food justice is communities exercising their right to grow, sell, and eat healthy food. Healthy food, in this case, being fresh, nutritious, affordable, and culturally appropriate and grown locally with care for the well-being of the land, workers, and animals. People practicing food justice leads to a strong local food system self-reliant communities, and a healthy environment. So in that definition, we see a lot of crossover with food sovereignty, but it does have different ramifications. So dealing with issues of food justice also means that communities have food security. Food security exists when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active Mm -hmm. and healthy life. Yeah. So as far as I can tell, the term food security dates back in popular usage to the 1970s and a UN World Conference on Hunger. It was at the 1974 World Food Conference that Henry Kissinger announced that within 10 years, no child in the world would be going to bed hungry, which, um, LOL, as if Henry wasn't in the middle of a secret bombing campaign at that very moment, literally murdering children in Laos and Cambodia. But I digress. (laughs) uh, At the end of the conference, the UN announced a resolution that, quote, every man, woman, and child has the inalienable right to be free from hunger and malnutrition in order to develop their physical and mental faculties, which sounds curiously like what socialists and others on the left have to say about the issue today. But again, I digress. (laughs) Anyway, as you may have guessed from the fact that it's 2018 and we're still talking about this shit, starvation and malnutrition are still a massive global problem, despite what Kissinger promised. This episode mainly focuses on food justice in America and the problems of food security here. 
but we could certainly elaborate on how these issues play out internationally, um, especially, I think, in the global south. Totally. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like we could do a whole episode about literally where the term banana republic comes from. And like, (laughs) like I would be so into that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just like. It is still surrounded in the U.S. about how, like, the U.S. has literally destroyed other countries based on our food practices. But that's not really where we're going today, but maybe we will go there. (laughs) (laughs) So like we talked about in the food sovereignty episode, the U.S. government has programs that they claim alleviate these issues. For that episode, we talked about the Commodity Foods Program. And for this episode, we'll be talking about things like SNAP and WIC. SNAP is a hunger alleviation program, and WIC is a nutrition program for pregnant women and children. So in 2016, about 14% of all Americans were on SNAP. That's 44 million people. But still, roughly a quarter of Americans who would benefit or should be benefiting from SNAP don't receive its benefits. Mm. Republicans, like literally right now, are renewing calls to limit eligibility for these kinds of programs, like with work requirements and drug testing and that sort of thing, which (laughs) would accomplish little more than throwing more needy people off the rolls. So to illustrate, um, 75% of SNAP recipients are in households with children. 15% of recipient households include elderly family members, and a fifth of recipient households have non-elderly disabled folks in them. Yeah, exactly. I just want to like drive this point home even more because it's so crucial to... Well, I feel like when we talk about SNAP in the dominant mainstream media or even like if people are talking about it casually at your dinner table or whatever, people get shit wrong all of the time. And it's also mm-hmm. like honestly very, very thinly fa- veiled racism. But let's, I just want to like hammer home some of these statistics. So, as Kellen said, the average SNAP participant is children. The highest proportion of SNAP participants are children. Of those that aren't, and I think this is one of the things worth emphasizing, of those that aren't children or on disability or retired or something like that, the majority work. Again, it's just like more than half of the SNAP participants are children. And also, not that people need an excuse in this capitalistic hellscape to get help getting food, but if you're mm-hmm. having a discussion with your Republican or conservative or even liberal but doesn't get it, family members who say some bullshit about laziness, give them some facts. And I wanted to spell another myth quickly regarding undocumented immigrants. So undocumented immigrants, first of all, pay taxes. Like, this is a big myth. Um, they're like, they're leeching off our tax system, all this shit. Like, similar to any non-home-owning individual, like, I don't own a home, but I pay taxes on the things I buy. So do undocumented immigrants. So it's it's the same rate of tax. It's not like someone gets, like, a different tax rate. They're not, like, asking for a green card when you go to buy things. Think mm-hmm. Jesus, what the fuck? Sorry, I just, like, had, like, a handmaid's tale, like, <laughs> flash in my head, and I was like, Jesus. <laughs> But in terms of things like SNAP, no undocumented immigrant can receive SNAP benefits. And in fact, the demographics of non-children who receive SNAP are predominantly white. So whenever you hear someone talk about immigrants like leeching off the tax system for these types of programs, just make sure you're getting your facts straight and have that information at the ready. And I just want to like really quickly before Kellen takes us back to the broader level, 
only 55% of food insecure individuals are income eligible for food stamps. Mm -hmm. So a lot like 40%, 45% of folks who are food insecure don't have access to SNAP due to their income being quote too high. Like in the US, this typically means you're making more than $17,000 a year for a family of four. So $17,000 a year for a family of four puts you at that limit of not getting the full amount of food stamps you still may receive like a lighter end of ebt but it won't be the maximum amount which the maximum amount at least in my county is something like 150 dollars a month which is already too low um so also more than a quarter of food insecure people approximately 29 percent are not income eligible for any food assistance so no snap or WIC. yeah and I, I think it's important to point out that being food insecure isn't just being poor it's about where you live you know do you live in what's called like a food desert where you don't have access to like healthy food on a regular basis healthy food sort of using the definition that laura mentioned earlier so when you have programs like snap and wick that are based on income requirements alone um, you're naturally going to be leaving people out who may be over the income requirement but still living in an area where it's very difficult to get you know, good, nutritious food. Anyway, we could talk a lot about the failures of SNAP and WIC, though, of course, for many people, they make a huge difference and um, they're definitely better than nothing. But I think it's important also to sort of examine welfare programs on a structural level and think about how they actually work to reify inequality in our country. So one thing I wanted to bring up is the connection between these welfare programs and mass incarceration, which is something that might not be evident on first glance. Um, And for this, I'm leaning really heavily on Elizabeth Hinton's recent book called From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, The Making of Mass Incarceration in America, which everybody should check out if this kind of stuff interests you. So Hinton's argument is basically that While we usually trace the war on drugs and its related programs and effects back to the Republican administrations of the 1970s and 1980s, Lyndon Johnson was actually really instrumental in, ironically, criminalizing poverty through his war on poverty or great society initiatives. So why anybody in the world is an LBJ stan, given his awful, awful record on Vietnam is beyond me. But if you're still on the Johnson train for some reason, this might change your mind. So Johnson's war on poverty was an attempt to end, you guessed it, poverty in the United States. A big part of its focus was to improve living standards in the cities that were being decimated by white and capital flight in the 1960s. And this was done in two ways. One, a a new batch of welfare programs, unlike anything the U.S. had seen since the FDR era, and two, a corresponding series of programs Johnson called the War on Crime. The structure of LBJ's War on Poverty tied welfare services and law enforcement services together from the very beginning. Hinton's book shows how that created this culture of surveillance surrounding the distribution of government benefits. So we know that Nixon and Reagan were central in ratcheting up the hyper-policing of black and brown neighborhoods, but what fewer people may realize is how central Democrats have been in that effort and the degree to which policing is tied in to welfare programs. It's no coincidence that Bill Clinton, who led a bipartisan effort to reform, or more accurately slash welfare programs, lent credence to the black welfare queen myth in the 1990s. 
And that myth can only exist in the first place because of the policing apparatus that Johnson set up around the disbursement of war on poverty welfare benefits in the mid-1960s. Yeah, totally. And just again, this is a really common way that racism just shows up in people's discussion. So if you see people talking about reliance on any assistance in a racialized way, other than being like most of the people who receive these benefits are white, be sure to put the kibosh on it. Yeah. And so what this means in terms of tying policing together uh, with these welfare benefits is as long as food security remains an issue in this country, there's space for people in power to make demands on the food insecure. Um, This is true for people in precarious economic situations of any variety, and that in a nutshell is Marxism, that our capitalist system puts poor and working people in positions where they can be taken advantage of because of their dependence. But that's why we see so much debate on what people should be able to use food stamps for. So should women on WIC be able to use their benefits to buy potato chips? What about alcohol? Uh, The fact that they're quote unquote food stamps to begin with and not just cash transfers to the poor, although with EBT they take the form of a use restricted debit card, is indicative of the ways that our government seeks to circumscribe the opportunities of the poor and the working class. And with these limitations comes the authority to revoke benefits. And to revoke benefits, a system of policing must be in place, and so on. It becomes entirely self-justifying. So food security, even and even the limited steps our government takes to address it, is not just a health issue, but it also reflects on so many other structural problems in our society. Mass incarceration, wealth distribution, racism, sexism, and on and on and on. Yeah, totally. Yes. So, yeah, this is, thank you again, Queen, Queen Callan of the history queenness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, so eloquent. <laughs> Right. This is. A, I'm speaking English here, right? Yeah. Um, I I think like it would be helpful if we could put some examples into this, or like what, or describe the different ways that this exists in the United States currently, or at least mm. in recent history. Yeah, definitely. So just because we keep bringing, it's hard. It's hard to have this discussion without bringing a lot of numbers into it. Um, so here's some more. Um, <laughs> So in 2012, according to the U.S. government figures from 2012, about 50 million Americans are living in a state of food insecurity, which is just huge, mind-boggling. Yeah, that's absolutely ridiculous. And I found a lot of numbers on Feeding America, and according to them, 63% of seniors in America have to choose between buying food and medication. Oh, my God. Yeah, of course, this touches on the garbage fire that is the United States insurance-driven healthcare system, but now I'm digressing. <laughs> um, and of course, if you know anything about medicine or anything about bodies, or if you have a body, you know that <laughs> nutrition is integral to overall health. So it's pretty easy to extrapolate that if you're in a position where you're choosing between buying food and buying medication, your health will be compromised one way or another. Totally. Food as medicine is a huge thing that is completely disguised in the United States. Like it's way more common to have that discussion in other countries. Mm -hmm. And a big piece of that is because the medical lobbies don't want folks to be healthy in ways that diminish their bottom lines with big pharma. So there's like these huge advertising campaigns on like the 
the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world that allows pharmaceutical companies to advertise to the public. Like, how many fucking commercials are there that's just, like, about whatever drug with, like, half of the commercial being about the potential side effects? But that's just not a thing that's allowed in other countries. And instead of there being much more advertisement that focuses on, like, a more public service announcement or like a public health announcement about ways of being healthier or ways to cook food or things like that like we're Mm -hmm. instead we're inundated with constantly with this pharmaceutical nonsense so like I don't think it's a digression I think this is like a huge part of this issue so thank you for bringing it up (laughs) (laughs) of course thank you for validating me (laughs) another huge issue in the United States is food waste Um, An average of 72 billion pounds of perfectly good food is wasted per year. And that doesn't include the food that we throw away at our own homes, like, you know, the wilting cilantro in your crisper. Um, This (laughs) statistic also comes from Feeding America. Of course, that includes, you know, farms and grocery stores and restaurants and manufacturers, um, among other uh, food producers and distributors. Manufacturers, for example, will often throw away perfectly good food for packaging defects. Mm. Grocery stores throw away food once it hits its sell-by date or for fresh fruits and vegetables when they start to wilt. These are things that people need in order to survive, and they're being thrown away because they can't be sold. Mm. Now, if the government guaranteed every person enough food to survive and also the things necessary to make it enjoyable, like herbs and spices, it wouldn't be a matter of compelling production. It would just be a matter of logistics. Yes. There are, yeah. Sorry. I mean, there are already, oh, no, you're fine. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, there are already farm subsidies in place. Walmart rakes in almost $8 billion in government subsidies every year, and half of their sales come from food. I'm pretty sure the companies that haul unused food to dumps are government subsidized. And I'm pretty sure that the dumps where that food where that food waste comprises 21% of volume mm. are also subsidized by the government. SNAP and WIC are government programs, and so are the agencies that investigate food stamp fraud and mm. the agencies that arrest those suspected of committing food stamp fraud and the court system that tries those people for committing food stamp fraud and the jails and prisons in which they're punished for committing food stamp fraud. Mm. All of those are funded by the government. The government is already spending loads of money on food each year, but it's not making sure that people who need it get it. The government could save money on court fees and incarceration costs of poor people who just aren't poor enough for food stamps if the baseline presumption was that people need and deserve food and that people who say they need food are telling the truth because needing food is a biological fact. Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) this is so fucking crucial too like I just feel like I mean even if you have I know when I lived in Portland there was municipal composting Mm -hmm. Um, and so everyone you know similar to having a garbage can and a recycling bin like you also had a composting bin that was picked up by the city government and that definitely decreases the amount of food waste because when people are creating compost they're creating essentially like a new soil product that can be put back into the earth and to grow more food so instead of like decomposing in a landfill somewhere it's it's in some ways like recycling that those nutrition that nutrition that was stored in that food to be put back in the soil to create more nutrition But that's only one piece of the puzzle, right? Like a big piece of it is exactly what Lindsay was saying with like what 
the laws are in place for grocery stores. Like they have to get rid of things by a certain time. And there are organizations around like if y'all have like a food not bombs in your area, a lot of times grocery stores and other things like that will partner up with organizations like food not bombs or even food pantries. Food pantries will get donations from grocery stores and things like that because the issue becomes the selling piece. It's not necessarily... Mm -hmm getting that food to people it's the fact that they literally it's illegal for them to sell it so I think exactly what you're saying is like this reshaping and and reprioritizing of all of these pieces when it comes to just getting people fucking food like getting them the food it exists we can just get it to them (laughs) right (laughs) and not throw it in a fucking trash can (sighs) Also not make it like so difficult for people to get it through. I mean, through products like Food Not Bombs. I know that my city does that. They like serve meals to the homeless on or people who can't afford food on Sundays. Mm -hmm. But there are six other days of the week and, you know, three other meals on Sunday where people just don't have food. Mm, Exactly. It's fucked up. Yeah. But of course, it's it's so difficult for individuals without you know, support of the system itself to solve this problem the system has created. So I think we do need to search for, I mean, while Food Not Bombs does great work, it's so important that the government come up with a solution rather than trying to prevent fraud, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like fix the underlying problem, which is that people are hungry. And I think it also ties into housing insecurity, you know, not to like make this issue so broad, but it really is like part of it is when a lot of the the homeless population are is the population that often is at food banks and is taking advantage of these um, not taking advantage in like a, a gross way in like like literally utilizing is how I mean it yes. in this sense are using these uh, resources But part of it that, you know, could be alleviated by getting fresh produce to people Mm -hmm. is not alleviated if a person doesn't have a kitchen. Right. Like there needs to be this like overhaul of the system in general so that like people can have not only access to food, but obtain the knowledge of how to cook it and also have a facility where they can cook it. Yeah, and I think that's that's pretty important too because with SNAP and I think also with WIC, you can't purchase hot foods mm. with your benefits. Exactly. Um, so like if it's meant for quote-unquote in-store or on-premises consumption, you can't use SNAP and probably also not WIC to buy it, which is a huge problem because if you are homeless, then like, you know, you don't have a place to store sandwich meats. Like you don't have a, a way to cook your like canned vegetables if you ever want a hot meal you're gonna have to rely on somebody else to get it because you can't use the only you know money you have to purchase food available on hot food totally and just a really quick clarification of wick the way that it often works is you'll have these specific coupons for specific products like including the brand so who knows what those brands did to to work with the U.S. government on that. But um, mm. like 
when I, I was a cashier at a grocery store for one of my first jobs, and when people would come up with WIC, if they didn't have the exact product that the WIC coupon was for, they had to go back and find something, even if it was something of the exact same amount of like say it was milk like if it was the mm-hmm. if it was a quart and the thing was asking for a quart but it was not the specific brand they would have to go back and get it so wick you don't have choice at all you're kind of like you get these vouchers that are for very specific products that the US government has deemed crucial for pregnancy and for young children and like you have to go through a process of getting those pieces even if it's not culturally relevant or appropriate for you you have to still like get these specific things (laughs) sorry went off on my bullshit (laughs) no sorry that's what this whole episode is it's good (laughs) yes um we're gonna take a quick music break and we'll be right back Okay, and we back. We still talking about what food insecurity looks like. I want to talk about the city I live in or the county I live in or like what people. So I'm in Buffalo and people talk about Buffalo in a few different ways. We can talk about it as Erie County, which is the county Buffalo lives in. Or people talk about it in terms of Western New York. 
Side note, if you're talking to someone from Buffalo or Rochester and you're like, oh, you're from upstate New York, you may get slapped. It's possible because <laughs> people who live outside of New York City in New York State don't like to all be homogenized into one thing called upstate New York. People who live in quote unquote upstate New York think about it as like the Adirondacks area or above Albany. There's central New York, western New York. Anyway, downstate, <laughs> there's a lot of things. And just know that because it's not New York City, it is still not all one thing. <laughs> Okay, I digress. Anyway, um, so just within the food bank of Western New York's service area. So again, we're hearing this buzzword, Western New York. That services four counties. So within that area, 180,670 people, which is 13.4% of the overall population, are food insecure. And they didn't go into on their website what they mean by that. And so I think by the terms we've been kind of defining it by, I could see that number actually being higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so of those people, over 63,000 are children, which means a quarter of the children of of the population or they they round down to saying it's one in five children is food insecure but it's really in between one in five and one in four children in western new york are food insecure and that's in new york state right like new york state probably has a larger amount of social security programs in place mm-hmm. um, than some other states around the country I think New York State, maybe people think that it's more (laughs) glamorous than it is. There obviously still are um, lots of gaps, which this is just kind of touching on one of them. So Buffalo is is a really diverse city with a large refugee and immigrant population. So food insecurity also touches on issues of culturally significant foods, as well as information about how to cook foods. So food security needs to take into account culture and heritage like we can't just be like here eat kale because yum like people aren't gonna shift that way uh also because let's be honest with ourselves here kale does not taste good yeah i actually made a decent kale dish yesterday but it wasn't strictly kale and it only tasted good because it tasted like garlic because i used a lot of garlic so kale you're right does not taste good even when you can make a decent dish with it exactly like i want to just put it out there because i was like a kale hater for a long time but my friend told me that if you because because on its own it tastes really tough and bitter but if you do things like massaging it you just like kind of take it in your hands and squeeze it for like 10ish seconds it softens it becomes this deeper green color and it becomes much sweeter um, and then if you add like a little squirt of lemon onto that it becomes even much more palatable so that without even cooking it and then if you cook it in something like oil with a little bit of salt that changes it even more but if you want to even have it raw like squeezing it and having lemon on it creates something that is super palatable and considered a superfood so it's like there that's why the educational piece is so crucial but also fuck people's obsession with random (laughs) superfoods so i stand corrected um (laughs) my apologies to the kale lovers listening right now uh Apparently, there are ways to make kale not terrible. But it's like, still, 
people are obsessed. Like, I feel like there was shirts back in like 2008 that was like, I love kale. Like people just yeah. had shirts like that. And it's like, why are, is the United States obsessed with kale? We could do a whole episode on like food as a as a status signifier too. Ooh, honestly, yes, 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 uh, yes. Just brainstorming on air right now, y'all. <laughs> if uh, you like that idea, let us know. If you don't like that idea, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like that idea, take it somewhere else and complain elsewhere. Yeah. No, <laughs> but I mean, it also like. It takes time for taste buds to adapt and shift. Like if anyone mm. studied abroad or if anyone, you know, if you if you are connected with uh, with friends of yours that are immigrants or refugees, like it takes time for anyone to like have their taste buds shift. My friend who lived in China for a while and was teaching English there sent me photos of this book that talked about if you went to the United States and like the abhorrent food in the United States and they're like and they use this thing called ketchup it's like <sighs> disgusting they put it on everything and they talk about like our obsession with sauces and all this stuff and I was just like dude like yeah it takes it takes we're all whether you recognize it or or not your taste buds are a product of the way you grew up. It's the culture you grew mm -hmm. up in. It's this class you grew up in. And we need to remember that we can't play the role of cultural judgment when we try to determine what food is best for a given person. Mm -hmm. <sighs> so speaking of which, I want to talk a little bit about the discrepancies between this thing called my plate and snap for a minute as well. So... Those of you that don't know, my plate is the new food pyramid. So instead of like a pyramid, it's a circle. It's on a plate. It's, it's The USDA came out with it during the Obama years. I believe it was the beginning of 2011. Mm -hmm. And this new system has a plate with cer a certain portion of fruits, vegetables, grains, and proteins. That's within the plate itself. Um, and then there's dairy off to the side. And part of the reason that they did that, which is actually a huge shift, is there's an acknowledgement of lactose intolerance and also our bodies don't actually need dairy to survive, whereas we do need those other things. Our bodies literally nutritionally need the vitamins and things like that that are, are present in vegetables, fruits, grains, and proteins. So when you break down the amount of things that the USDA is suggesting you have at every meal, there are certain costs that come with us having that specific diet. Mm -hmm. So the diet that the USDA is acknowledging is healthiest for us, um, again, meaning getting the specific nutrients that our body needs to survive, cannot be attained on SNAP benefits, which, by the way, is also determined by the USDA. So it's not like they don't have this information. Part of this is because the food that the U.S. government subsidizes, which is mostly beef and dairy, are not things that people should eat in large quantities or at all through my plate. So the food that is the cheapest and fills your hunger most are often not what gives us the most balanced nutrition um, for healthy growing and healthy lifestyles. And I just want to have a quick stop here to remind folks that 
we're not trying to say that going on any sort of diet is a good thing. Here, when we're talking about diet, I mean it in the broad sense of what we eat. And I'm just pointing out the hypocrisy between what nutritionists over at USDA are saying in terms of a balanced nutritional diet and what is given to families through the SNAP program. Yeah, yeah totally. I, I think it's also like important to note that there are dietary reasons that like cheap, cheaper food, even like theoretically cheaper food, like like milk or theoretically healthier, cheaper food like milk, I should I should say there are dietary reasons why that isn't something that people even can consume sometimes. Or, you know, you think about like how expensive it is to be gluten free and recognize that like, you know, celiac disease doesn't just strike people who have the means to, you know, get gluten free pasta or gluten free bread or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, It also strikes, you know, people in poor and working class families. And so something that the welfare system in regards to like food in the United States really isn't great at dealing with are like nutritional requirements, whether that is, you know, accounting for the fact that there are people who are lactose intolerant or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, have dairy allergies or people who have celiac disease or gluten intolerance, like all of those things really aren't well accounted for with these programs. And so it's another example of how you have sort of this normative idea of what people should be eating. And even that, you know, you can't really afford very well on these programs. But if you add, you know, an additional level of dietary restriction into the mix, then things get even more difficult. Mm. To say nothing of the fact that like, some people would like to be vegetarians or vegans. And if you're poor that is extremely difficult yeah definitely can be I also saw I was looking at the WIC guidelines and I know that they don't cover any like meat purchases they do cover dairy they do cover eggs but it does not um, and it covers like canned fish which is not Mm. really great for you but it doesn't cover like any meat and I was just thinking about how difficult it would be to get your nutritional needs living on WIC if you have you know diabetes or if Mm. also not not or but also and if you're lactose intolerant like that would be so difficult to survive on that diet if all you can eat are like the fruits and vegetables and like legumes that doesn't sound like an appealing or sustainable diet to me at all yeah so yeah they don't these programs do take into account subsidies. Oh, by the way, the the dairy that is covered by WIC does not cover like imported cheeses. Mm. Uh, so it strictly covers subsidized cheese. Um, That's interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. Did a little digging yesterday. It's kind of crazy <laughs> too. Like, so during the Obama administration, my plate was kind of launched in all of the public school systems across the country, and so it. But it was. It was kind of like my plate light. And even still, if you go into pretty much any public school across the country, you'll see my plate posters on the wall probably. Even if you're not sure that's what it is, that's generally where that information, if you have like posters in your cafeteria, come from. And so it kind of wraps back into the other thing that we were talking about before is so students were forced to take a vegetable and a fruit and a grain and a protein. 
And this created a ton of waste because there wasn't the Mm -hmm. educational piece plus the vegetables and fruits that were given to students were often like a fruit cup. And if y'all remember what those fucking fruit cups were like, it's like not, it's not good. I love fruits and vegetables and they're just like super covered in a bunch of sugar and it's, it's not, it's like everything that this system is doing is all half-assed if we see Mm -hmm. what food lunches are or uh, school lunches or even you know we often have free breakfast in the united states as well for for a lot of school systems if you look at that in other countries it's way more scratch uh, scratch cooking in the schools it's not these like frozen sodexo things like put out on a lunch tray that have just been like thawed in a microwave so that mm-hmm. first of all employs people at a higher skill level so there's training their skill which gives way to higher wages and more meaning in their job and then you also have students who can not only have access to healthier food but food that tastes better and there because if you're cooking from scratch you can create foods that are more culturally and um, socially appropriate for the youth at your school. It's just like this whole fucked up thing because they required that this is used in schools but didn't go the distance of being like, here's how to do that in a in a in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Which by I the remember way remember when they were Oh sorry. Go ahead. Just really quickly, like since Trump has been elected This has been revoked. So while schools are still generally operating under this, students aren't required to take the things, which it's it's a double edged sword because part of me is like I want the students to like be pushed to take these things. But also when we're not doing the work to a alleviate the waste issue that comes from that and b alleviate the taste issue that comes from that, like then it's Mm -hmm. really not fulfilling anyways. Yeah, I remember when that program was first being ruled out in schools, there was like a congressional hearing or something in which they determined that maybe as a USDA announcement in which they determined that pizza sauce is a vegetable uh, in order to like meet that requirement. But A of all, it's sauce and B, tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable anyway. Yes. So it's like they were just trying so, so hard to like make foods that they were willing to serve fit these requirements rather than changing the food they were serving in order to fit these requirements. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. (sighs) So let's talk about what's being done about this because, you know, there obviously, as we often point out in our show, there's a lot of stuff going on that helps combat this fucked up system. So... There are often food justice groups all throughout the entire country. I want to highlight an organization right here in Buffalo called the Massachusetts Avenue Project, or MAP. So MAP is an organization that works with all prongs of the food injustice system. So they have an urban farm that spans six city blocks on Buffalo's west side. And that farm is actually in production, so it produces enough produce for a bunch of areas throughout the city. When MAP started, it was like 1992 and the and Buffalo's West Side was extremely food insecure. And so it generally 
produced the produce for that area but you know gentrification and other things made the west side a little more food secure so they added a mobile market which brings that produce at a really cheap price to other areas of buffalo that are food insecure and again map does not make a profit off of that produce they're a nonprofit organization and they define food insecurity by the amount of distance between a given neighborhood and access to fresh and appropriate produce so you may hear the Food, the term food desert, which mm-hmm. um, and often what people mean by that is there isn't enough fresh produce available. Uh, there may be bodegas that will have food, but not necessarily fresh produce. But just be careful with that term because a lot of bougie white people toss that word around when they think there isn't a quote unquote proper grocery store in a neighborhood and aren't really thinking about the actual availability of produce. So there may be a lot of times in in my neighborhood there's there is an asian market for example and in that asian market there are there is produce but a lot of white people come in and they're like oh there is no grocery store here and it's just like maybe not for you right um mm-hmm. and it's it's just important to be culturally aware in that situation but so back to map um so there's an urban farm There is distribution of that produce to other areas of the city. Uh, They also have a farm-to-table aspect. So they offer free cooking classes and other scratch cooking educational materials so that once people have fresh food, they know how to use it. And a lot of the produce that they sell is culturally significant. So they kind of worked within the populations that they were serving to get beans and things like that that may be available or may have been something that was grown in Central Africa but can also survive in this climate um, so that it's serving the refugee population. So the final piece that they do as well is youth employment through meaningful work. So because food justice is economic as well, the community members who started this organization saw that teens didn't have an opportunity for meaningful hands-on experience at all. So they employ around 15 teens year-round and 30 teens in the summer. So they get hands-on experiences of all of the different pieces of the organization, from farming, cooking, distribution. They have their own youth garden that is separate from the production piece so that they can have autonomy and get their hands dirty without fear of the community not necessarily having produce if something goes wrong. And... They also get a political and social engagement side of things as well. So there are organizations like this all around the country that they they aren't super common, but they do exist. And there are organizations focused more on the legislative side of things as well, pushing food justice policy. In New York State, I know we have the Good Food Purchasing Program, which tries, as we were kind of talking about before, to get local produce and scratch cooking into the food, uh, into the public school systems. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to me that a lot of the work combating food insecurity is organized around schools. That's one of the reasons that free lunch programs, which is another thing coming under fire from Republicans and even some Democrats, are so important. I also think about some of the work that groups like the Black Panthers with their famous breakfast programs have done throughout U.S. history to ensure that their communities have access to adequate nutrition. And even like thinking about the recent teacher strikes, One of the main concerns teachers in Oklahoma and West Virginia had about striking was where kids on free lunch would get food if the strikes 
forced school closures. And teachers in both states organized fundraisers not just for wages lost on strike, as has long been custom during labor disputes, but also to provide for their food insecure students. Mm-hmm. And we could, we could get into like a whole big thing about how we view educators and their labor as almost a caregiving role and what that says about gender and labor and how it's valued. But I'll stop with the observation that schools are often the only thing that are standing between American children and literally complete malnutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, I should also add that there can be a very real stigma in schools around accepting free meals, which can deter the kids who really need help from taking it. And this is one of many reasons, including the fact that there are children in this country who are graduating high school saddled with, I kid you not, thousands of dollars in school lunch debt. Jesus. Uh, why free meals should be provided at every school for every child. Yeah. Always. Mm-hmm. I think it's a sign of a morally bankrupt nation that school lunch debt even exists. Yes. Uh, yes. But maybe, maybe even a worse concept is school lunch shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're tied for awful, uh, like <laughs> the worst. But um, I read an article in U.S. News and World Report about this and uh, it described an incident in which the woman operating the cash register in a school cafeteria told a four-year-old child that she had no money and she threw her lunch in the trash so the food was there the money wasn't so that baby went hungry she was four Mm -hmm. yeah some schools will offer kids who can't pay a different theoretically cheaper meal like the price difference isn't negligible anyway and like they don't already have the food on premises but that sets the kids apart from their peers in a very embarrassing way Mm -hmm. Um, of course some schools send overdue lunch accounts to collections agencies like even a cursory glance at school lunch debt reveals layers and layers of depraved food injustice Mm. that same article in u.s news and world report talked about the Obama administration's program that was overruled or overturned by uh, the Trump administration requiring that schools provide different products meeting different nutritional needs to children. And I think that it's sure it's definitely not a terrible thing that the schools or that the children don't have to take these, you know, types of food anymore if they don't want them. But I think it's awful that now schools aren't required to even offer them. Right. So, you know, not only is it embarrassing and stressful for a child who's denied food when they're hungry, but it's also like it has a horrendous ripple effect on or it can have a horrendous ripple effect on that child's entire life. Because for a lot of children, school lunches are the only meal that they can rely on. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, you know, as I mentioned earlier, hunger compromises overall physical health uh, in ways that are particularly significant in formative years. And it also makes it very hard to focus in school, which of course can affect long-term educational outcomes and therefore the ability to get good jobs and break out of the cycle of poverty in the future. All of this can, you know, be pinned down to, or at least credited in part to the absence of healthy and affordable school lunches or free school lunches. Super fucking dark. Yeah. (sighs) The school I worked at in Oregon, it was free lunches for everyone. It was free breakfast and free lunch for every student. Mm -hmm. Um, And any of the students who stayed after school, they would also get free dinner. So some children were getting three meals a day. But that school also had a food bank 
that every Friday people could come and get different um, non-perishables from our food pantry. And there was also like a backpack they called it like the backpack club and they would Mm -hmm. on Wednesdays be sent home with different canned goods and other things that were donated by the community. But it it goes back to this thing of like those things are often not government subsidized and it's coming from different community members or different nonprofit organizations that are grant funded through private philanthropy or whatever. And so it's like, fuck, like, there's, it's just like there's so many ways along the road to food security where the U.S. government is just completely fucking up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just completely fucking up. Uh, so I wanted to talk really quickly about a couple organizations that address the connections that Kellen was speaking about earlier between incarceration and food injustice. So there are a couple organizations that are specifically working on disenfranchised people of color reconnecting with agriculture and food production. So in Washington, D.C. and and also Maryland, there's an organization called Hustlas to Harvesters, which offers people released from incarceration ways out of poverty through urban agriculture careers and other social enterprises. They note that the work of planting and harvesting helps build an environment and community that can help facilitate healing from the traumatic legacy of land-based oppression, from slavery to more modern practices of racist covenants and housing redlining that black people in the United States have endured. So co-founder Wallace Kirby says, quote, this is the generation that only sees agricultural work as part of plantation slavery. And Hustlers to Harvesters hopes to mend that rift by looking to African roots. So co-founder Xavier Brown has adopted a practice called Afroecology, which is a theory and practice created by fellow urban founder, farmer Blaine Snipstall. Sorry, it's hard for me to say that. Blaine Snipstall to describe how black people in the U.S. can reconnect with their African or Afro-Indigenous past through traditional planting and harvesting techniques. He says, Afroecology is reorientation of our connection to the land and organizing principle and the way we express our culture while we grow food and grow healthy people. So it's like specifically employing disenfranchised people who have difficulty getting jobs, first of all, through our Mm -hmm. fucked up system of disenfranchisement, but also... It's almost like this specific trauma healing work through working with the land. There's another organization called Soul Fire Farm. It's based in <clears throat> upstate New York. <laughs> and it, but is it, it really upstate New York? It is really upstate <laughs> New York. <laughs> it's doing similar work. It may technically be central New York, but whatever. I'll let it slide. So <laughs> Leah Penniman, a farmer and food justice organizer at Soul Fire Farm, describes it as a place where hundreds of new black, Latinx, Native American, and Asian growers come to participate in agricultural training workshops that focus on healing people as well as the land. She says, We're in a moment where black and brown people are ready to reclaim our right to belong to the earth and ready to reclaim our place and agency in the food system. So there's a lot of reclaiming, I think, that goes hand in hand with food justice organizations, which is often where it can actually overlap with 
food sovereignty, as we kind of spoke about in that previous episode. And so I I just kind of like implore all of y'all to look up the organizations that are doing that work, either regionally or statewide in close to you and support them in ways that that you can. I know for our call-in episode, we had a, a guy call in saying like he's inherited some money. Send it over to these folks. Help them get off the ground. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> I love the parts where it's like, okay, which of us is going to talk next? Yes. I don't want to anybody. So, yeah. So, I think that's like a, a good good note to end it on. Yes. As always, you should check us out on Patreon. Send a few dollars our way. You could be listening to this episode a day early, mm-hmm. uh, but you're not. Or maybe you are. I don't know. But if you're not, that can change quite easily. Just literally $1. Patreon. Do it. Also really helps if you subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter at Season of the Bee. So check us out there as well. We've got merch and reminder that we have our second live show coming up in New York City, August 11th this year. And we'd love to see you all there. So stay tuned for more info on ways that you can find tickets and uh, meet us in New York. Yes. Also, send us like pictures of you wearing our merch because we love to see it. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. All right, guys. I love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Season of the bitch.